Hello, 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 and welcome back to the You Are Not Too Busy podcast. I'm your host, Noam Raider, and I'm so happy that you're here as always. Before we jump into today's guest, we'll just do a little quick catch up of what has been going on in my life, what can I share with you guys, and of course, please reach out and let me know what's going on in your life too. I love chatting with you guys, especially the people I've connected with through the podcast because I feel like you just probably know me a bit more than people who just follow kind of Instagram or TikTok or something like that. I just love how podcasts allow you to have that true candid stream of conversation. Whenever I do my solo episodes or even just my intros for all episodes, I try my best to not have any sort of outline or any sort of pre-planned thoughts on what I'm going to talk about um, and just let's see where it goes. But anyways, um, in life right now, I am still in residency, as you can assume, so I will be there for the next two years, Um, but I'm on my family medicine rotation now, so I'm actually rotating through family medicine rather than like previously, as you guys heard in other podcasts, I was on emergency medicine and then I was on elective and like dermatology and pediatrics, but now I'm actually on family medicine. Um, But on family medicine, we also do overnight call for obstetrics, so deliveries. Um, So that has been interesting and exciting, um, but a little scary I did two already, so I'm a little less scared now, but was pretty scared going into it. Basically, we do 24 hours in the hospital. You're the only resident who is on call for any family medicine patients that come in, so patients who are followed for their um, delivery by a family doctor for their pregnancy. Um, And then when a patient comes in and there is a delivery, we just call the staff physician and they come into the hospital. So they're on home call, we're in-house. And that's a little nerve-wracking because you kind of have a lot more responsibility. You're kind of the front man. Um, But it's been going well. And I helped deliver a baby last night. And no matter how many times I'm in a delivery, it's always just as exciting to be there um, for someone's first breath, for their first cry, for meeting their mom and dad for the first time. It's a really, really special moment. And it really makes you think about the crazy opportunities that medicine allows you to step into these really intimate and important family and life moments. Usually, or not usually, but um, I'm, I like when they're happy moments, but sometimes they're also not so happy, um, but still just not taking that lightly and reminding myself that throughout this journey to not ever take that lightly or take that for granted um, and to always just show up as my best self and make sure that I'm either making a positive experience even more positive or doing whatever I can to alleviate any extra stress in a, in a negative situation. But anyways, um, that's on that for residency and such. Other than that, um, something that's been on my mind a lot is I get so many DMs being like, how do you balance everything? And how do you maintain work-life balance? And I think I do a decently good job at it. But the reason I always kind of stutter on giving advice for is something that I've struggled with for honestly forever and still struggle with now is I go to work and then I come home and I make sure to make time for all my wellness type things, right? So working out, for reading my book before bed, for cooking a healthy dinner, for making time for my social life, seeing my friends, my partner, my family. But what I'm struggling to make time for 
is doing nothing. And the older I get, the more I value that and the more I'm craving just complete silence and nothingness and just truly relaxing. And I just want to talk about this because I don't want to make it seem like I have it all figured out and create this false perception on social media because I still don't. Um, It's really hard for me to not feel guilty when I'm relaxing, to not feel like there's more to do especially having two jobs, one being medicine, one being social media, I kind of come home from my full-time job and have another one waiting for me. So it's hard to give myself that kind of break. But it's something I'm really working on, um, saying no to plans more and making time for myself. Um, But I don't really have a point in saying this because I don't have the solution yet. I just want to say that if it's something that you're dealing with as well, that you're not alone in that. Um, but maybe on the next episode, I'll have some more advice and we can delve into it more, but just kind of wanted to put that out there. Finally, I want to talk about what I've been reading. So over this past weekend, I drove to Montreal from Toronto by myself. Um, for the way there, I drove in by myself, which is about like a five to six hour drive. So I got an audiobook, and I'm not a huge audiobook girly. Um, I prefer to read them, but it's a great way to pass, pass um, a long drive. So I listened to Verity by Colleen Hoover, which I've been meaning to read for a while. And I thought it'd be a good one because it's kind of like a thriller suspense book. So it definitely kept me wanting to keep listening and literally I got to Montreal and I was like sad the drive had to end because I wanted to know what happened in the book. Guys, it was so good. Um, I really, really liked it. I will say overall, and maybe this is a bit of an unpopular opinion, but I find Colleen Hoover's writing to be a little cheesy sometimes. Um, I don't think it's like the most beautiful literature I've ever read, but the content of her books is really interesting. Um, So I still really love them. Um, But I also see the merit in all the people who kind of are bashing them lately, being like, there's so many better books. Why is everyone obsessing over Colleen Hoover? But Colleen Hoover, if you're listening, which you're not, but if you are, you're amazing and I love your work. Um, But yeah, anyways, overall would definitely recommend. And if you've read it, please DM me your thoughts on the ending because I finished it like three days ago and I am still thinking about it, guys. I It really makes you question everything. Um, other than that, in terms of actually reading on paper, I'm almost done the book I told you guys about last week called The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. And I've told you guys about this dilemma before that it's like not my usual type of book, but I want to finish it. And honestly, the more I get into it, the more I'm really appreciating it. It's just, it's so well written and it really, really gives you a glimpse into what it's like to go through a really difficult grieving and mourning process. Um, and it's it's just, it's really enlightening. I, I do really recommend it. It's a bit of a slower read, but still worth it. Um, and yeah, anyways, guys, let's just get into today's guest because this is probably one of my favorite episodes in a little bit. Honestly, I can't even say that. Every episode is so different, but I definitely like left this conversation being like, wow, I learned so much and like it shifted my perspective on things. And it's such, such, such a relevant topic. I swear since recording this, I've like brought this conversation up to so many people, like in the social settings, my family, my partner, all of that, because it's just like been on my mind and it's allowing me to see 
things in our everyday life in a new perspective. So without further ado, let's introduce Dr. Gail Saltz. So Dr. Gail Saltz is a psychiatrist. Um, She works for the University of Cornell, but aside from that, she's also an author of several self-help books, including The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, which we're going to talk about in depth today. She also has several of her own podcasts. She's on television. She does it all. She is so inspiring, so, so intelligent. And let's just jump right into it because you guys are going to love it just as much as me. All right, everyone. So let's welcome Dr. Gail Saltz to the podcast. Thanks for having me today. Super excited to be here. I think it's going to be a really insightful conversation that I'm excited to learn more about. And I know you guys are as well. And before we jump into all the meat of it, um, let's just start with an introduction. Can you give us like your two to three minute elevator pitch? Who are you? What are you here to talk about? And anything else you'd like to add in as well? Sure. Um, Well, I am a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital at the Weill Cornell Medical Center. But uh, so I'm a psychiatrist. I'm also a psychoanalyst. I'm at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. And I am also a podcast host myself. Um, my current podcast that I'm, I'm recording is called How Can I Help with iHeartMedia Media and Seneca, Seneca Women. Um, before that, I, I had a podcast called Personology. And uh, I'm an author. So I have a number of adult books that are, you know, I, I think you could say in the genre of self-help or uh, psychiatric or neuroscience education, I guess I'll say. And um, I am a media contributor in various ways. So I guess I would say a big aspect of my work besides treating patients for the last number of decades has been public education. And, um, you know, decades ago, um, the issue of stigma really really prevented people from getting treatment or even talking about mental health issues. And so initially I sort of started walking down that road of public education in the hopes of reducing stigma and um, increasing psychoeducation with with the hope ultimately that people would be less resistant to getting treatment and that people around them would understand when somebody they're close to is suffering, what might be going on, how to, how to handle that, how to bring them to treatment. Um, Because basically that, that has been the big, big obstacle in psychiatry. Yeah, definitely. And something I've also kind of come into myself, both just through personal life and interacting with people I know, but also within being in the medical field. And I'd love to hear at least briefly, what was your journey towards psychiatry? What inspired you to enter the field and maybe what continues to inspire you today? So I did not have the typical path in the sense that I, after I came out of medical school, did an internship and residency in internal medicine, thought that I would be an internist. And along the way, though I certainly liked aspects of internal medicine, I found that the highlight of my week was something that was called, actually it was called Biederman rounds because 
Dr. Wiederman was the head of an aspect of psychiatry at Cornell, and he would come around with the medical residents once a week, and we would talk with patients about what he labeled the life narrative, what, what happened in their lives, and try to unearth what might be going on that actually was very much connected to the medical issue with which they were presenting. I thought that was totally fascinating. Like I was pretty enraptured um, at, at that part of the week. And it led me to do more and more reading in the area of psychiatry and the mind. And I just ended up feeling that that was, I mean, certainly at the time, so we're talking about the late 80s, <laughs> um, that was a lot more mysterious than it is today. But um, I, I really was more interested in what was happening in people's minds, as it turned out, and the connection between that and what was happening in their bodies. So after that residency, I decided to do a psychiatry residency. And, uh, and that was a hard decision at that point, because to be perfectly honest, stigma existed not only for the general public, but it really existed in medicine as well. So to be honest, my chief residents were pretty distressed that I would choose to leave medicine and go into psychiatry. They thought that was, you know, not as prestigious. And um, that was a hard decision for me to make, but I really felt that it was important to pursue what I was interested in. So I, I did that residency. And then along the way, I just continued training because in the Cornell program at the time, you know, and I would still say this is true today. There's so much to learn in psychiatry that you may not get as much training in certain kinds of psychotherapies, which are really important treatments because there just isn't time. So I then went on to do training in psychoanalysis, which um, while there are many parts of the country that you would have a difficult time finding a psychoanalyst, never mind doing psychoanalysis, the basis for much talk therapy is really psychodynamic psychotherapy, understanding what is in the unconscious and how that's driving mood and behavior. And by understanding and exploring that, one can change mood and behavior. So making what's unconscious conscious, that's the basis of a lot of psychodynamic psychotherapy. So that's what I spent some years doing. And I actually also did a fellowship in, in treating sexual dysfunction. For a couple of years because again in my residency that was something again probably due to stigma not covered and i found that many patients came in with sexual issues and we weren't really equipped to treat them so um, i did some training in that as well and then i went into private practice and uh, really enjoyed practice and at some point um, I was also very, you know, involved with my department at Cornell. At some point, the public relations people had, um, were looking for people to answer calls to media about psychiatric or psychological questions. And I, I did some of that and I found it, um, you know, really gratifying. You reach many people as opposed to one person in your office. And that sort of launched me on really what became a, a good chunk of my career, which was, you know, media in general and public education. Um, 
So that is sort of how I wound up where I wound up. I definitely, I mean, even in today's day and training in medicine over the past few years, still encounter that same stigma you're talking about. So I can't even imagine what it was like um, in the past as well. And coming through that and changing specialties really shows, I think, your passion, dedication in the field, which is really, really exciting. And I would love to talk a little bit more about your book, The Power of Different, because when I saw this book title come up and I started reading more into it, it was a lot of topics that I think we kind of anecdotally encounter in everyday life, things we think make sense that these things that make people less so or weaker can actually be their strengths. But it's not something that I've ever really heard talked about and definitely not within the medical field. Um, and I thought it was just really fascinating. So I'd love to hear what inspired this book. Was it any specific patients or instances that led you to this realization? And what prompts you to, to start writing this and share this message with the greater community? So this was not my first book. Um, but along the way, treating patients, first of all, I have, I have a private practice in Manhattan. And uh, being in a city like New York City, you end up seeing a lot of very high functioning people, very successful people, but who are obviously coming because they're really suffering and they're really struggling. So internally they're struggling, but yet they're high achieving. And I thought that was always an interesting combination that I was seeing so much of. Of course, it was affecting their functioning and they you know, through treatment, were able to function even more highly, but they were often people in very successful positions or high achieving. Then I, as part of the sort of public work, I guess I will say I do, um, I started a talk series at the 92nd Street Y, which is a sort of a big public intellectual community center here in New York. And um, I wanted to explore. So I'm always looking for ways, or I was always more so looking for ways to talk to the public about mental health issues that they would want to come and listen to uh, without feeling I can't be here because people will know that I'm coming because the title has depression in it or the title has anxiety in it. So I found that if I gave a talk and I said, you know, origins of major depression, you know, uh, there hardly anybody would come. Right. They were like, I don't want to be identified in this audience. But if I talk to somebody who was, let's say, a celebrity figure or, um, you know, somebody who'd been successful in an arena and I talk to them about major depression, <laughs> then people would come. And so I started this series that I called um, psychobiography and psychobiography is a is an area of discipline within my field where you can retrospectively look at what the psychological background and any psychiatric issues and how these issues may have played out in this person's life, where they came from, and how they ultimately uh, drove them down the path that they went. And I was basically not thinking that I would find people with great psychiatric illness, but just interesting psychological issues. I wanted to cover people of huge historic notoriety. Note, I say historic because, you know, I, I don't think that it's right to cover someone who is living who might not appreciate having that covered. 
so, you know, these were people like Abraham Lincoln or, um, you know, Beethoven, Mozart, uh, uh, Albert Einstein, Vincent Van Gogh, but famous historic artists, musicians, scientists, people in every, you know, area of, of achievement, let's say, or historic notoriety. And I found after doing this for like a year, um, it was hard to find someone that didn't turn out to have a psychiatric or a significant psychological issue. And that was pretty fascinating to me. So uh, between my practice and the series that I was running and from a personal standpoint, um, you know, I grew up in a family with a lot of anxiety. Everybody was pretty, you know, typically neurotic type A person, um, including um, my my youngest brother, my, my brother who's eight years younger than I am. Um, and we are very striving, let's say. And um, he, he went on to win the Nobel Prize in 2011 as one of the youngest people to win the Nobel Prize in the area of astrophysics for his discovery of dark energy in the accelerating universe. And so I thought, you know, hey, there's such a there there. And uh, so I, I started really, you know, doing a lot of my own research in, in, in reading what, you know, and looking at what the cur current neuroscience says about people who um, achieve and people who struggle with uh, an issue and why that might be and what does it mean overall. And, it, you know, there's, there's actually a really a huge literature on that. It just hadn't really been pulled together is the reality. And so people who do work in the area of creativity, um, there are actually two Kaufmans. One is Scott, one is James, and um, who do a lot of work in this area. But a lot of people have, have been looking at the neuroscience, but only more recently because a lot of our imaging techniques, fMRI and PET scan, those are, those are more current techniques to be able to look at function and structure and activity. And so um, it was really sort of pulling that together and, you know, making the observation that there seems to be a real, I'll have to say correlation because I cannot say causation, but there is definitely a correlation, which hopefully at some point we do find out what that causation is, um, if it's there, between having particular psychiatric diagnoses and having the, and I will have to say potential or great strengths. Those strengths vary depending on what the issue is. And I say potential because this all seems to fall out along what is called the inverted U-shaped curve, meaning when you have mild to moderate illness, the likelihood of presenting with the strength is increased compared to the general population that does not have this psychiatric issue. But on the other side of the curve, if you have moderate to severe disease, then you are less likely to present. And it just, so in other words, the potential for strength is there, but if you are very impaired with your psychiatric illness, you're not going to be able to organize 
and function at a level that you can show what that potential strength is. You can't manifest it essentially. So, um, so the book is really about, you know, breaking down common disorders and looking at what those connections are and why they are. And, you know, people, individuals who struggled with these things, I profile different people and what sort of what I call workarounds they used to try to and often do manifest their potential strength, making them very successful people despite their struggles. That's so fascinating to hear. And although it doesn't take away from the legitimacy of these diagnoses and the fact that it can be really difficult for some people, I think it leaves a very positive message of if you get to know yourself and perhaps get the help you need, you have this potential to really harness it for strength, which I think is really inspiring. And I know, um, especially as conversations increase in society, it's something that a lot of people are dealing with, whether mild, moderate, or severe. Um, But I'd love to get into a specific example. I think one that's going to be relevant to, unfortunately, a lot of people these days, and that's anxiety. And I'd love to hear more about how specifically um, the anxiety disorder or subtypes of anxiety disorder can be turned into something positive and how perhaps specific people or just in general have um, used it to um, harness their strength rather than letting it hold them back. So, you know, anxiety is a normal emotion. I mean, that, that's one thing about all, all of, I, I could almost say all of the DSM, that, but not all of it, but much of the DSM, many psychiatric diagnoses are really normal feelings that have been so exaggerated that they are, you know, making you symptomatic. They become not normal. Um, and Anxiety is one of those, you know, anxiety is a a normal feeling. It's our mind's way of letting us know there's potential danger or threat, which is a good thing from an evolutionary standpoint. You want to know if there's a bear outside the cave so you don't come out, so you don't get munched, so that you uh, survive to pass on your genes. However, you know, we unfortunately react to all perceived threats. And those people with anxiety disorders, you know, how, some of which maybe is likely biological, meaning their, their ability to take all their perceptions of potential concern and overread them and therefore be anxious much of the time and have their sympathetic nervous system on overdrive much of the time are left in the you know, often debilitating state of feeling that there are threats everywhere and there's danger everywhere. And that makes it very hard to function. Um, So somewhere in the middle are the people who have more mild or treated, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or any of the anxiety disorders for that matter. And they tend to be more alert, you know, more on, you know, their scanning, they have a vigilance. Again, the vigilance, if overly vigilant, can be somewhat debilitating, but it's also can be a strength. You emotionally see what's coming down the pike. A lot of anxious people often read other people's faces accurately and early and see what is happening. And you might call them sensitive, noting what is happening 
before other people might notice. Um, and a lot of anxious people are very perfectionistic. Now, obviously being incredibly perfectionistic can be a problem. Um, if the perfect becomes the enemy of the good, you can't therefore complete anything, then you know you need treatment. But a lot of anxious people with treatment or having a mild form really are just very high achieving. They strive, they're ambitious, they work hard to get it right because right matters to them. So this combination of hypervigilance, being very driven, um, means that a lot of very high achieving people are in fact quite anxious or have the biological predisposition for, for anxiety. Um, that vigilance means they often can predict outcomes. We could be talking about business or we could be talking, talking about medicine. Um, that you know, an anxious doctor may be a really good scanner of their patient and leave no stone unturned and be you know, quite um, high performing, I guess that's what I'll say. And it's interesting because there are some papers that suggest, in fact, that high intelligence has co-evolved co with anxiety, which, um, which it isn't, I mean, wouldn't be surprising from, again, from an evolutionary standpoint. But um, the important thing is, of course, if you have an anxiety disorder that is debilitating, you should get treatment. And I really try to make that clear throughout the book. I, I'm not being Pollyanna about any of this. Um, there is no benefit to the suffering part. And in fact, you may not be able to manifest your, your perfectionism, your ambition, your vigilance in a productive way if you're not treated. So treatment is always important. And unfortunately, anxiety disorders can cause, you know, a person to not be able to function at all. But if they are treated or it's mild, as you know, you could, you could take the sports model of um, there's optimal performance anxiety, no stress, no anxiety, don't perform as well in sports, on tests, in all kinds of arenas. But when you do have a certain amount of anxiety, again, a window of anxiety, and you don't go over the window or under the window, you are likely to perform at your peak. And we can be talking about, like I said, tests or performance of any sort. Yeah, definitely a lot of that resonates for the last kind of example you gave with test anxiety, definitely something that personally I dealt with in undergrad and through medical school and such but also getting to a point where it became manageable. And I felt that I actually started doing better under pressure. And I remember the day I wrote my MCAT several years ago, I got a higher score the day of my test than any other practice test I did before. And that's kind of happened a similar trend on other exams. So it's kind of finding the ways to manage your anxiety, not letting it take over you, but also recognizing that, hey, maybe something that I'm struggling with is actually helping me that day. Because like I mentioned, I am maybe more hypervigilant, checking back on my mistakes more so because I have that kind of raised level of awareness. Um, and I'd love to hear um, a similar kind of explanation for any other disorders you'd like to talk about, like perhaps depression or ADHD. I know those are definitely things that a lot of people struggle with as well and struggle to harness into something positive. Well, there are definitely um, very clear cut 
advantages, for example, in or potential strengths in ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, obviously, it can also be quite debilitating and really hurt self-esteem in kids. So it's, it, I mean, ADHD is one of the most common, aside from anxiety disorders, a disorder is diagnosed in children in the classroom. And, you know, there's a misnomer that people think, oh, it means you can't pay attention, which really is not what ADHD is. It is a basically this the switch or regulator in your default network in the brain um, is faulty, meaning it it randomly sort of switches and it and it's more affected by the dopaminergic system, which is the reward system, so that anything that you really are engaged about and feel enthusiastic and excited and interested in is likely to keep you very attentive. In fact, so attentive, it's called hyperfocus. Um, and there are numerous historical examples of scientists and so on who may have struggled with ADHD, being able to sit and focus for incredible amounts of time at an incredible depth and therefore produce um, really amazing material in, in a relatively short period of time. But the problem, of course, unfortunately, is that because that switch is not consciously regulated by you because you have ADHD, um, if something is not very interesting to you, like your math test or your English homework or whatever it might be, um, then your ability to attend, even though you want to, even though you're like, I need to study for this test, I want to attend, will not be there. So it's very frustrating. It's difficult. People around have a hard time understanding that the child can't or the adult can't necessarily do it, um, even though they even want to do it. What is understood though about ADHD is that the, the wiring difficulty, so to speak, seem to have to do with the default network and the potential strength associated therefore has to do with activity in that network. And that network happens to be the area that is associated with rethinking, imagination, fantasy, daydreaming, um, there are a disproportionate number of CEOs of companies who bought up the company themselves, and then that's why they're the CEO of that company. Um, and so the it does seem to be that the ability to think up original, innovative, even divergent ideas is increased in those people who have ADHD. It doesn't mean every idea will be great, um, but they have a basically a larger number. Um, and, you know, statistically speaking, some of those are great. Um, and so uh, a lot of creativity and originality and innovation in people who struggle with ADHD. But it's also combined with high impulsivity, which is a symptom of ADHD. And obviously, that could be a problem if you're an adolescent and you're doing behaviors that are dangerous or not good. Um, hence you need treatment, but for someone who is like, I got this really amazing idea, I'm going to run with it. And there is a, uh, predilection for risk-taking and for impulsivity. That means a lot of people with ADHD just do their idea. They do it. They don't go with the anxious person. Oh, but what if this happens and that doesn't work out? And, you know, um, so 
these are potential strengths that can be harnessed and many people with ADHD do harness them. But again, they don't go away if you do get treatment and treatment might be, you know, learning coping tools to be able to manage some of these symptoms that you're having. Um, so therapies of various sorts, or they may be medication depending on what the issues are and the severity. But it's also important to acknowledge these potential strengths because in all of these disorders, low self-esteem is tremendously undermining and adds to the suffering that people who are struggling with these things do have. So being able to, at a young, younger age, hopefully, know what those potential strengths are and interests are and play to those strengths does a lot for self-esteem in the long run. I think that really interestingly ties into the stigma portion that we were talking about earlier. And I feel like definitely with kids as well, having a diagnosis like anxiety or ADHD or anything else really um, can be a big social barrier and prevent them from harnessing these strings like you spoke about. So I think it's a it's finding that fine balance between, of course, not delving into toxic positivity and saying that these diagnoses are amazing and we don't need to treat them, but also empowering people with these diagnoses and not making them an illness, but just something that is a part of you. And, and how do you use that to your advantage and what other help do you need to make it something positive? I think that's super interesting. There's a, one person I profile in the book, um, who's a physician, Dr. Beryl Benesaraf is a woman who, uh, it, she is a radiologist, but, um, and, and she has quite significant dyslexia. So often a young person with dyslexia would definitely feel they cannot go to medical school and they, they cannot become a doctor. Um, she persevered at a time when, you know, uh, a lot of people didn't even understand what dyslexia was. And that there is a disconnect between dyslexia and intelligence. In other words, IQ and having dyslexia are have nothing to do with each other whatsoever. She persevered nonetheless. It was very difficult for her. Um, and I think that she struggled a lot with self-esteem issues. But at some point on a rotation um, in radiology, before she chose to become a radiologist, she told me, you know, they put up radiographs, she was looking and she could see things and saw them more quickly and even some things that weren't seen at all than the attendings that she was rounding with as a student and was really advised, hey, you know, you have an aptitude for this, like an unusual aptitude for this. And in fact, she did. She really, she, she told me that, that certain things in, in x-rays would really like leap off the film for her in a way that was, she thought other people could see, but apparently they could not. And she went on to become the person who basically figured out how to diagnose Down syndrome in utero on ultrasound and, um, you know, lead that, lead that project um, and make that medical information available to women and couples. Um, and that has to do everything to do with her dyslexia because the uh, increased visual spatial abilities in people with dyslexia is known. And the 
um, particularly uh, in the periphery of their visual space, which increases the amount of information they get in the visual spatial spectrum. And, um, and so there is something about her having dyslexia that actually made it possible for her to be as successful as she was in that field and make those discoveries. That's such a, an amazing story. I really, when you mentioned her great success in the um, ultrasound findings of Down syndrome, I kind of got chills there for a minute because it's such a remarkable story of someone um, pushing through a lot of those stigma and barriers. And it just makes me think of how many more people are there out there who might be great physicians or perhaps great engineers or lawyers or teacher, whatever it might be but are disencouraged from entering those fields because they were labeled as having any of these diagnoses as a child and perhaps where these fields could be and how much we could have progressed if more of these conversations would be had. I definitely think that's the case. And uh, I hope I hoped to open up the conversation about this and make more of this information available to people and, and, and get people thinking. I, I mean, I, I'm sure that we will only be learning more from here at some point, but you know, we, more research dollars are needed, as is always the case, um, to you know pull together. You know, we tend to put the research dollars into only investigating pathology, right? You know, who's suffering? Let's look at the at the pathologic side. Not against that. I'm very for that. But it's it's pretty unusual that the research dollars are available to look at strength and to look at um, ability. So. Um, I, I don't know how quickly things will move, but I hope we continue to accrue and and may, most importantly, that people, um, that parents and people in education fields, which was never an audience of mine, um, but now ha is, um, you know, increasingly understand this and can help children and adults, you know, show what they know and figure out what they can do. And, uh, and at the same time, obviously treat them. And following that really inspiring story, I know you spoke a lot about this in your personology podcast, which you're not doing anymore, but I'd love to hear about any um, historical famous person or anyone else you want to talk about that maybe some listeners may be familiar with as well and kind of their story from as we know it of how they harness their psychological diagnoses for their success? Well, so, um, you know, obviously I would have to say for anybody thinking about the field of psychiatry or in the field of psychiatry, obviously I can't really retrospectively diagnose someone, right? So I, I, I will say, okay, you know, we, really you have to understand that in fact, if you're not sitting with them, if I didn't sit with, well, if I sat with them, I couldn't tell you about it. If I, if I have not sat with them, then I obviously cannot make a diagnosis. So we say that. But I think we can still have interesting conversations about symptoms that people uh, wrote about, that they struggled with, and uh, displays of strength that were noted historically. So um, for example, I covered Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, always listed sort of in the top three presidents of all time. I don't think anybody would really argue with um, his unusual leadership and strength. Um, and 
he is known to have suffered with and wrote about repetitively his struggle with what at the time was called melancholy, um, but really had all the hallmarks of clinical major depression. He had multiple episodes of um, thoughts of taking his life, repetitive suicidal ideation, a lot of the symptoms of depression. I, I think that's been pretty well documented. But he also had unusual empathy for a presidential leader um, having perhaps a lot to do with the choices that he made. Um, there are numerous stories of his empathy, which range from you know individuals to animals to you know his thoughts on the divided nation and um, and slavery, and um, that were different and unusual for the time. And it does seem to be that high empathy and basically realism. So in other words, most of us who are not depressed see the world a little rosier than it is. I don't know how many of us are feeling that way right now, but generally speaking, if you are euthymic, you may see things just a little more optimistically than reality would have. If you have depression ongoing, if it's deep depression, you know, moderate to severe, you see things in a very, very negative light. But mild to moderate, you probably see things in a fairly realistic light. Realism is actually a potential strength in the setting of having depression and moving forward and making decisions about what you're going to do. And it did seem that Lincoln had a realism and obsessiveness, another feature of depression, rumination. Same thought over and over again, very dogged about it. Um, a perfectionism, which often is a trait seen in, the, in people with major depression or depression of any sort. Um, creativity, um, not something felt during an episode of serious major depression, but um, in between, basically, with the depressive personality. So I, I also had spoken to Andrew Solomon, you know, who wrote Noonday Demon, the tome of, you know, sort of the most important book, I would say, on depression, on major depression, written by a non-clinician. And um, he has struggled himself repetitively with the depression, spoke often of in-between episodes, this driving his writing, um, which, you know, and driving episodes of feelings very creative. So, yeah, so Lincoln has um, exhibited a lot of the strengths that we think go along with having recurrent major depression. Um, who else? Uh, Vincent Van Gogh, where you know there's a lot of argument about what did he struggle with. Though I would say that the physicians in the hospital where he was hospitalized did think that he had epilepsy, and his symptoms fit very well with temporal lobe epilepsy, which is a psychiatric diagnosis and fits with uh, labile mood. You know, he had, he really struggled with depression and a lot of anguish and other times not, high irritability, high what's called like stickiness or, you know, getting immediately highly involved with other people in a super intimate and like overly stuck to you way. And then as soon as I'm involved with you, I fight with you and 
and we have, um, you know, a complete sort of meltdown of the relationship. So there are many features of what he struggled with, and he struggled a lot, that do speak to, including, um, you know, the moments of, of psychotic thinking and visual hallucinations that fit with temporal lobe epilepsy and the treatments that he was offered that were for epilepsy did help him when he was uh, in hospitalized. But the fact, but his, but the potential for visual hallucination in the natural environment may also have had something to do with his painting choices, which were so different from the time, completely a break with the school of art that was occurring at that time. And so if you if you look at his story and his episodes and the timing of things and when he painted what, you see a lot of potential evidence that what he struggled with psychiatrically may have also impacted his choices, making him sadly something not recognized in his lifetime. So he didn't get to benefit from it. But you know, one of the most unusual, original, you know, innovative artists of his time. Those stories are really fascinating. And um, as you kind of speak to them, I find myself thinking to people I know in my life who might be struggling with depression or other diagnoses and kind of finding those similarities. And again, I've said this so many times, but I wish these conversations were had more to really empower those people. And even if it isn't during um, the periods where they are having, let's say, the increasing creativity and they are currently in, in a depressive episode to to kind of show them that there is a way to kind of get out of it and harness it, especially with the right resources, is really incredible. Um, and on the topic of not letting your struggles and your barriers kind of take over you and define you, I want to shift gears a little bit away from these clinical diagnoses and talk about something that I know a lot of people experience known as imposter syndrome and how those self-limiting beliefs um, can really get in the way of your success. So I'd be really interested to hear kind of your understanding, your definition of imposter syndrome and how people can begin to overcome it and perhaps even use any of those thoughts and fears for strength as well. So the concept of imposter syndrome, which is not a psychiatric diagnosis, it's not in the DSM-5, um, you know, kind of came into view in the 1970s. Um, some women psychologists who noted that achieving women around them were having a disconnect between their internal sense of ability and uh, what they were being told or given or you know actually achieving on the outside. And so they may have been accomplishing, but all the while feeling things like, this must just be luck, or boy, I've really fooled people and they're going to discover that I'm not as blank, smart, able, you know, um, whatever the adjectives are that they think that uh, they're, they're being perceived as and they don't feel secure that they have. And this disconnect creates fears of being exposed and um, as illogical as it is, but 
um, and but also feelings of guilt and discomfort that they're getting things that maybe they don't deserve. Along the way, um, in looking at this phenomenon, I guess I'll call it, it turns out that really of people accomplishing close to 70% of all people um, have these thoughts at some point. So it's not rare. And it also turns out it's not just women. Um, it really is, is pretty evenly divided amongst men and women. It often occurs when there's sort of an elevation into a position like graduate school, like medical school. A lot of medical students do uh, struggle with imposter syndrome, men and women. But um, so graduate school, executive level movement, movement to the next level whatever that next level is. And it particularly, it turns out, does affect people who are in a minority group. So it may have been thought to be all women at some point because they were the minority group. Um, I, my medical school class was 25% women. Um, actually, it, my college was 25% women. Um, so, uh, you know, as that changes, uh, you see, you know, men and women, but particularly minority groups, culturally, racially, and sometimes by sex, do struggle with it more as they are uh, questioned as to why they're there. And um, they question themselves why they're there. And I often see, you know, people who are in a minority group saying, you know, did I, I don't feel like I got this, I, you know, Maybe I got this because of affirmative action, uh, when in fact they did get this because they very much belong there and they do have all the goods. And they're even getting that feedback, but they can't accept that or feel secure in that. And it can cause very low self-esteem and uh, a lot of guilt, depression, anxiety, insecurity. Um, so even though it's not a psychiatric diagnosis, it is something that needs attention. It is not uh, good to just walk around feeling that way. And it can undermine your ability to produce and flourish in whatever position you're in. Um, so it is important to attend to. And by attend, I mean, um, it could be anything from psychotherapy, understand you know, how and why you're having such unrealistic views of yourself relative to what the world has is telling you or has told you. Often it does come from growing up in an environment where expectations were very high and uh, there was a lot of perfectionism and it seemed impossible to ever measure up to whatever those expectations were. And that person has incorporated a lot of those thoughts of negative self-image. But it can also be helpful to uh, speak in a group with other people that are having the same struggles. So sometimes, you know, for example, I, I think, you know, groups of women medical students in my time being able to sort of find each other and talk about these feelings and understand, oh, hey, it's not just me. You know, others are having the same sort of feeling. Maybe there's something systemically that's giving us this feedback and maybe we should reevaluate that. Um, so, you know, support, 
questioning those thoughts, whether that's individually with others as a group, with a therapist, um, to realign and have a more realistic perspective. I hadn't heard that um, historical perspective on where the term imposter syndrome originated from. And it was really interesting to hear. And um, I feel like still definitely resonates to what we see the term as today. But also, like you said, it expands to so many groups other than women. And really, I'm sure it also um, is applicable to all those people we spoke about, people who told they were struggling with X, Y, or Z as a child or adolescence or in adulthood. And then having these successes that we talk about, um, it kind of plays into that as well. So it's definitely very interesting. And something um, I always come back to whenever I experience imposter syndrome and a quote um, that was really simple, but really resonated with me was, if you're feeling imposter syndrome, it inherently means you have something to be proud of. Um, So it doesn't really fix the problem. But for anyone else who may be feeling it now, I feel like that's one that kind of at least works a little bit for me to get me through that kind of hump. But Overall, as an author yourself and hearing about your really inspiring journey um, in your career and also everything you spoke about today, I'd love to hear of any book recommendations that you have for anyone in their early to mid-20s, even in their 30s, Um, but basically people listening to this podcast who are just trying to figure out what they want to do with life, figure out how to optimize themselves or anything in between. Huh. Okay. Um, Gosh, you know. Well, to some degree, I would tell you, I hope in your 20s that you're reading, you're doing some reading for pleasure, to be honest with you, because I, th- I find that pretty rare these days. I think in one's 20s, it's such a striving time and you're working so hard to get somewhere and figure out so many developmental issues that I would say um, reading, which is so good for you in so many ways, but I, I mean pleasure reading. Um, you know, it's obviously it's easier to plunk yourself in front of a screen. Um, but there are so many, you know, to be able to use your imagination and, um, which is, it's much more important when you're reading for pleasure than you do in front of a screen. I, I mean, I hope, I, I wish that I had spent more time just reading for pleasure in my twenties, um, as opposed to just medical textbooks. And uh, so I, I, you know, there's not one, I don't know, particular book that I would say, oh, this is the book that that you should read. Um, I think if you're interested in mental health, um, I would say that reading books that do describe mental health symptoms, but from a patient perspective is really helpful, is really useful. So in that sense, I mentioned earlier, Andrew Solomon's Noonday Demon is is just an incredible, and you just will not think of major oppression in the same way again. It, you know, really a a fantastic, uh, and in fact, his other book, uh, Far From the Tree, which covers a lot of different mental health issues and other kinds of disabilities from, again, from a patient perspective, from a family perspective, from parent-child perspective, another great nonfiction, (laughs) um, but really great book that I I would definitely highly recommend. 
I definitely just noted that down for myself. And thank you so much for coming on today. I feel like I learned a lot and really brought in my perspective. So I'm sure the listeners are feeling the same way. Um, is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any last thoughts or words of advice? Um, and thank you again for today. It was wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. And I guess I would just say, you know, I'm really uh, pleased to see stigma, I think, being greatly reduced, in, definitely in the last decade. Um, I see a huge difference, and that is a wonderful thing. However, uh, I still feel we have a long way to go. So I hope that people who are entering the medical field will continue to work on this. Um, it's still, I think, the media representation of mental illness is still, um, you know, unfairly disturbing. Um, I think that we see a renewed and alarming interest in blaming certain social ills, I guess I'll call them generally speaking, but I'd be talking about gun violence or other, other real problems that we're having on mental illness incorrectly. And, um, and that greatly concerns me because it prevents us from, first of all, dealing with the actual causes of those social ills and attending to them, but also because it, it serves to, again, stigmatize mental health issues. And close to half of all people in this country at some point or another will struggle with a mental health issue. We need to change systems. There needs to be you know, true parity, which we still do not have. Uh, many insurance plans do not pay for mental health care. We don't have research parity. There aren't nearly the research dollars going in. We don't have accessibility. And this looks, this is affecting how many people are going into psychiatry. And we're, we're about to be in a, have a big problem. The a large number of psychiatrists are retiring or dying because they're older. And for many decades, we didn't have people entering the field having a lot to do with stigma and having to do with the fact that reinforcement was so poor. And so there are, there, we're going to have a, we already have now, but we're going to have a more concerning dearth of people in this field. And uh, unless there are some changes, I, I have some real concerns. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, thank you for today. And I know you already mentioned earlier your podcast and your book, but where can people find more of you? And of course, we didn't mention this earlier, but adding your book to our list to read in our 20s definitely feels very essential after today. Well, thank you. Um, and yeah, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Gail Saltz. And um, I try to answer questions if you ask me. So absolutely. Happy to be in touch. Awesome. Thank you so much.
All right, guys. Well, if you made it to the end of the episode, please let me know what you think. Send me a DM, leave a review. I'd love to hear if you learned something new today or if something you heard changed your perspective on something in your life. That's really the goal with this podcast. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a beautiful week. Um, Feel free to leave a rating, a review, uh, whatever you'd like to show some love. I really, really appreciate it. And I love you guys. Bye.